0: Is impossible. But certain things are highly improbable. Don't think I'll meet your kind again. Yeah. Not in this lifetime. Hey everybody.
1: Come on in, kick off your shoes, grab a seat, make yourself at home as you should when you're a guest in Bradley's house. I am your co-host, Jared Orr. She is the executive director of the Noel Family Foundation and cooler than a polar bear's toenails. My co-host,
2: Ms. (laughs) Kelly Noel. Kelly, how you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Jared. Cooler than a polar bear's toenails? I'm not sure I've heard that one before, but thank you. I feel like it's probably a compliment. So, somebody, thank you.
1: Somebody out there is going to pick up on that old school outcast line, <laughs> I can assure you. Is that um, what that is? That is exactly what that is. So oh, I
2: uh, see. I thought I was hip. I'm, apparently, I'm not cooler than a polarized toenails if I don't know what it's from.
1: Oh, no. You you definitely are. That's why I just have like okay. to remind you every once in a while. <laughs> thank um, you. I do appreciate as, it. As we are recording today, uh, it is Wednesday this morning, uh, the episode with... Frank Turner dropped. And I've actually already gotten a few messages from people that were like, "Hey man, I really wasn't familiar with Frank. You guys did an awesome interview. I dove into some of his music on YouTube. Uh people are really enjoying that episode.
2: I don't think any as much as you did, but people are are really enjoying that one." Yeah, well, I'm a dork and I super fan girled out, but I'm okay with that. I'm super okay with that. I absolutely loved talking with Frank and that was That was a real treat for me. So I'm stoked to be able to introduce his music to other people because I love him.
1: Yeah, well, that's certainly what you're doing. Now, Kelly, every single episode, you have lined up an incredible show for us. We've talked to people that you know, people that you kind of know. We've talked to some board members from the Noel Family Foundation. And that's exactly what you've lined up for us today. A special guest with some great stories. Kelly, tell everybody who's
2: hanging out with us in Bradley's house. I have the privilege of knowing some of the coolest people on the planet, seriously, and this is one of them. He is one of the board members for the Noel Family Foundation. He's a tour manager. He's strong in his recovery. He's helped many, many people that I know and love get clean, and I am really, really honored to have with us today Ken Denson. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Jared. We appreciate you being here.
1: Yes, thank you. My I
2: suppose the only reason that we can get you or get any of your time is because of covid so you're not really going out on tour much these days right
3: No sadly that's the truth I was um I was on tour on the road on Friday March 13th almost a year ago to the day um when the plug got pulled and they flew us all home from Minnesota and I've been home ever since
2: Oh my gosh that's crazy what a huge change. I mean, for most of us, it was, you know, some moderate changes here and there, but for you, it's been a complete upheaval. Is it weird being home so much?
3: Yeah. I mean, I've taken trips. I, I've, I've gone, I went and visited family on the East Coast for a couple of months and a um, couple of trips over to Hawaii, you know, to kind of break up the monotony. But, um, yeah, I've never been home three months straight in, in over 20 years. You know, wow. So you know, I
2: stopped feeling sorry for you right after you said Hawaii several times.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, really roughing it.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, somebody's got to do it.
2: Right. But no, I mean, you definitely deserve it. You are one of the hardest working people I know. So I'm I'm glad you're able to do that. That's awesome. So, Ken, for those people who don't know about your story, um, I want to kind of start at the beginning, if you don't mind, because you have – You've done so many things, you've experienced so much, and you have a really fascinating history, and pretty much everything about your life plays into everything that we talk about on this podcast. So can we start back when, I believe you were 13 is when you started drinking and using drugs, is that correct?
3: Yes, uh, 13 years old. My dad was uh, he was a career naval officer, and um, I was going nowhere fast. And it was really uncomfortable. We moved around every couple of years and we ended up in the suburbs of Washington, DC. My dad was stationed at the Pentagon. And, um, and that summer we always moved during the summer because that's how the Navy does it. And, uh, I just, um, I, I was just looking for something to make me feel different, you know, and, uh, my neighbor, uh, played drums, um, new neighbors that I just moved in next to. And he played, he had a drum kit, a Beatles drum kit in his bedroom and, and he drank beer, and we we just started drinking, and the party was on.
2: One thing led to another, huh? So then how did you progress from there? I know um, I I have a little bit of the benefit of knowing your bio from being part of the Knoll Family Foundation, but I know you struggled with heroin and cocaine for about 20 years. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So um, I, I started uh, – the first time I got drunk was drinking beers with Mike Brown, who was one grade ahead of me when I was 13. He was 14, I guess and this was the the very late 60s in the dc suburbs so all the hippies were around and there was a lot of psychedelics and things like that and um i immediately fell in love with uh how drugs and alcohol made me feel and i sh- started trying to do that as much as i could as much as a 13 year old could do um but by the time i was 15 i realized that uh, i had no more interest in the straight world And, uh, I wanted to make a career out of getting loaded. And so I dropped out of the 10th grade and I ran away from home and uh, I never went back to high school and I never went back to, uh, live with my parents. And I started drinking and using drugs on a daily basis. Uh, by the time I was 17, I was an IV drug user and I was using heroin regularly. And, um, I wound up in uh, San Clemente, California in uh, 1976. I had a, a little junky girlfriend, and um we had a little apartment down there and um we were just doing whatever we could to try to get by and get high and she ended up getting pregnant and um uh, I just started hitting bottoms really bad and uh by uh seventy nine I was being hospitalized uh for alcoholism and drug addiction and drug overdoses, and it just got worse from there.
2: Wow, so you don't do anything halfway do you
3: <laughs> No, it was. Kind of crash and burn, you know, it's just, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm an, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. And, you know, I just, um, I just can't stop. You know, I, I, I just hated the way I felt. Um, and drugs were the only thing that numbed, numbed me to feeling anything, you know, so I didn't want to feel anything and, and drugs fit that bill and did that for a long time, for almost 20 years. Till I was 32 until it stopped doing it.
2: Wow. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people just see the glamorous side of getting high or the glamorous side of drinking and partying. And for those people that can just, you know, set it down and then go back to their life. Okay. But, but there are people that, that just can't do that. And that's a very different thing. And I think it's hard for people to understand who don't struggle with addiction that at some point it's no longer a choice. And, and, uh, it sounds like that's where you were at that point.
3: Yeah. Yeah, You know, I, I don't, it's, it's really hard for people. Like you said, if you're not an addict or an alcoholic, you just can't understand why we don't just quit. Why don't you stop doing that? You know, why do you keep wrecking cars and going to jail and winding up in hospitals and overdosing and losing jobs and, you know, losing relationships. And I lost my daughter and, you know, just everything that comes along with that. And, you know, you can't understand that if you don't have this disease. You know, it's 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 a disease that tells you you don't have a disease and it just it really takes precedent over anything else in your life. And, um, you know, it, it it's either going to kill you, you know, just uh, deaths, institutions and jails are the only things that really await you if you go down this path and you end up to have that addictive personality or alcoholism.
2: Yeah. You know, if, if they put that on the label that might deter some people, but they don't. And so you just never know. You just never know when you take that first drink or that first hit or whatever, whether you're going to have that, that addictive gene or that, you know, that propensity. And, uh, and I think that's what makes it so scary for so many people. You just don't know. So how did you make it from DC on the East coast all the way up to San Clemente on the West coast? Well,
3: um, like you said, I said, I left home and was living on the streets, and and it was hippies and communes in the late '60s in D.C. and Woodstock and everything else. And um, and I I met my little girlfriend Mary. She was two years younger than me, and um, uh, she was still living with her parent at her parents' house. But we kind of fell in love, and we really fell in love with drugs, and uh, we needed each other to to keep that going, and um it just got really bad though. It continued to get worse. Um, like I said, I, uh, by the time I was 17, I was an IV drug user. And, you know, before I was 21, I was being hospitalized. But, um you know, we, we started, you know, shooting hard drugs, which I, I always never said I was ever going to, never going to do that. But once you do that, you don't really ever do it any other way, you know, because uh, that's what we t- tend to think is the best way to, you know, to inject the substance, you know, the quickest way to get where we wanted to be, which was out of pain. Sure. But, um, I was getting really sick. Um, I had, uh, back then, and this was the, uh, I guess the early seventies, uh, I contacted, contracted hepatitis C, but they didn't have a test for hepatitis C. And so they called it non A non B. So I had hepatitis non A non B and I was hospitalized twice for that. And and they just couldn't figure out why I was getting so sick. Why? My eyes were turning yellow and, you know, my liver was going wacky. And I certainly wasn't telling them I was sticking needles in my arm, you know, but um they would, you know, I'd go into the hospital and they'd fix me up as best they could. And, you know, tell all my friends to get gamma globulin shots, which is really uh, useless against hepatitis C. You know, it helps for hepatitis A. But, um you know, I played the game and, uh, you know, Mary got sick and, and we were we were just going nowhere quick. And we decided that our problem was the East coast. And so we did, you know, what any good addict will do is, uh, what we call a geographic. And we, uh, we had a couple of friends that lived in San Clemente, California. And, um, I had totaled my car. I had a Volkswagen and Mary had a little Carmen Ghia station wagon. And we, um, we packed everything. No, it was an Opal, Opal station wagon. We packed everything up that we owned between the two of us. And we had about $500 saved up and we got into our Opal station wagon right around Christmas of 76 and made for, uh, for California, you know, and we ended up in San Clemente and, um, and that's where, uh, Mary discovered she was pregnant and, um, she had gotten a job. She was working at a, uh, Caro's restaurant down on Avenida Pico in San Clemente. During the days, and I worked the graveyard shift at a Shell station, and we just weren't really seeing each other, and and we really didn't have the connections here that we had on the East Coast. So, you know, although we came out here to get away from our disease, to get away from heroin addiction, basically, we um we didn't have sources or you know connections to, or didn't know really where to go to get it. It wasn't like it was really prevalent down in South Orange County, you know, in the 70s. And so, um, you know, we were kicking, and it was just really uncomfortable and I come home from work one day from the graveyard shift at the shell station, and Mary's parents, who were not really keen on us having a child out of wedlock, they'd come they'd flown out and they'd picked her up overnight and took her away and put her in an unwed mother's home, and she ended up giving our daughter up for adoption about three months later.
2: Oh wow, that's really heavy. I'm really sorry,
1: that's tough.
3: I wasn't a fit parent though, neither of us were fit parents. So sure. It was probably what was the best at the time. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's it's a beautiful sacrifice that you guys made on her behalf for sure. Tell me about how you ended up in recovery. I know that the the first year recover of your recovery is something that Todd Zalkins, Z Man, who who credits you with pretty much saving his life, he said he really relates with your first year of recovery. What was that like? Well, um, yeah,
3: and I love Todd, and uh, and there's nothing greater in my life today, you know, in recovery with, you know, carrying the message and sharing my experience, strength, and hope. Uh, I, I ended up in the first treatment program in 1979 in, in Laguna Beach. Uh, I had an overdose, and they put me in um, what they called at that time the stress unit uh, at the South Coast Hospital in Laguna, um, which was basically the nut ward. Um, cause there really wasn't, you know, a treatment for, for drug addicts, you know, they didn't think cocaine was addictive in the, in, in the seventies and 79, you know, and they weren't treating it, you know, like they were treating alcohol and wow. I wasn't telling anybody how much I was drinking. So they put me in the network cause I was, you know, overdosing and trying to kill myself. Um, and so I kind of got introduced to this 12 step recovery, but I had no intention of, you know, quitting or getting sober at all. You know, and so I, uh, I went through the program and that kind of set up a pattern, uh, where I'd hit a I'd last a couple of years and hit another bottom. So I, I went back to work at uh, the shell station. I ended up working at this gas station for 10 years and, you know, before I finally got sober in, in 87. But, uh, I went through treatment in 79 and 81 and in 83. And then in 87, the summer of 87, I was, I was using, cocaine and heroin uh Valium, marijuana and alcohol on a daily basis and i didn't I didn't even know how I was functioning how I was still managing wow. to show up at the shell station but yeah. um I was really a mess you know and um I guess it's what we call a, a functioning addict you know i was I was able right. to keep a job all that time but um you know I, I needed to get some kind of form of income to support my habits but uh i was I was just wacky I just I had never had a restful night's sleep. I never went to sleep or woke up in the morning. I would pass out every night and I would come to every morning, usually with the alarm or my phone ringing with my boss asking if I was coming to work. Wow. And, um, and, and, you know, I, and I drugs controlled every waking moment, you know, certainly they controlled my whole mood and my attitude. And, um, they controlled when I would go to sleep because I would have to do. If I'd been doing up all night doing Coke or something like that, I'd have to do a bunch of heroin or Valium to come down enough to get to sleep eventually. And when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have to do a bump or something, you know, uh, uh you know, to get started to go, to go to work that day, you know, so it was just, just a miserable existence. I, I was poly addicted to so many substances and, and I was trying to kill myself. The, the, the final, the final straw was, um, it was, uh, I, I, I'd, I'd, like I said, I'd been at the shell station for 10 years and, and the guys were really great. It was two brothers that owned it. And then they were, they loved me and they treated me like, treated me like family, but they also enabled my disease for a long time. But, um, so I had weekends off. I kind of had a pretty good thing going there. I'd work Monday through Friday. And then the weekend to me was like party time and I would get as much drugs and alcohol and I'd stop at the thrifty drugstore and get a 10 pack of syringes and, and I would speed home right after work on Friday and I'd lock myself in my room, unplug the phone, you know, tape all the curtains closed and just party. You know, I'm, I had no relationships going in my life at this time. Um, I did have a roommate. I didn't live there by myself, but he just thought it was weird and I never came out of my room. And I would just take as much drugs and alcohol as I could. Um, you know, until I just couldn't feel anything and, and stay that way all weekend until I had to go back to work again Monday morning. Uh, I'd been trying to commit suicide at this time. Uh, I'd had five suicide attempts. I'd tried some very creative methods, but, uh, you know, nothing as serious as putting a gun in my mouth, but mostly, you know, heroin overdoses or, you know, pills and things like that. But, um, I think it was like June of uh 87 where I'd heard on the radio that the comedian Joan Rivers she was married to this guy Edgar Rosenberg and he had committed suicide with a combination of valium and alcohol and um one of the uh the drug dealers I was running around with was selling valiums selling a, you know a 100 valiums um in a bottle of valiums uh and so I I was picking up you know about one of those a week and uh, that was part of my my daily uh, supply. And on this Friday night, or it was actually around three o'clock Saturday morning, um, I didn't have any heroin, but uh, I had, I had, uh, most of that bottle of Valium and I'd had a, uh, an eight ball of cocaine, three and a half grams. And, uh, I'd been drinking and, um, once the cocaine ran out about three in the morning, I had, I just, I was just done and I was hallucinating and, I was just crazy and I had 80 of these volumes left and I can remember like it was yesterday. I, I just poured them out in my hand and I downed them with a pint of tequila, uh, 800 milligrams of oh. volume.
2: Oh my and, gosh.
3: And I laid down to die, you know, just like Edgar Rosenberg did. Um, I came to 48 hours later, Monday morning when with the phone ringing and my boss asking if I was thinking about coming into work again and, um, and, uh, obviously I found out that Edgar Rosenberg hadn't done an eight ball and coke when he, uh, committed his suicide. Um, yeah. so that was, that was my, my bad mistake, but, um, Whoa. I made it to, uh, a hospital in Dana Point at the time It was called Capistrano by the sea hospital. It was really near my house where I lived. And I stumbled into the, um, treatment room there and the emergency room there and, and passed out and, um, They told me i had a lethal blood volume level on admittance this was almost two days after i'd overdosed and that i had more than enough volume in my system to kill me kill several people but they postulated that the amount of coke which they also the blood test detected was sufficient enough to keep my heart beating through the overdose uh, essentially telling me that cocaine had saved my life oh my gosh yeah so it's kind of my i guess my claim to fame but uh it's hard to be grateful for something like that. And, and, and I ended up spending 39 days in that hospital. And, and that's where I had my surrender, which I think is really important for people, you know, to come to a point where they can surrender if they're really going to give up drugs and alcohol. And, um, and once I had that surrender, I found out that cocaine didn't save my life. There's a power greater than myself. I call my higher power that intervened one more time. You know, to give me another chance at life and to try to find my purpose and to fulfill that. And, um, I immediately, uh, started, um, getting active with the 12 step recovery program, getting a getting a sponsor. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing that, um, once I started working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous, uh, the obsession to use drugs left. You know, it was just removed. It was, it's kind of a gift that we, you know, that you hear about, hear a lot about. And, um, since that day and, uh, they, they detoxed me for 13 days on Valium in the hospital. So I went to the hospital on August 29th. And, um, I, like I said, I spent 31 days there and, uh, the last time they gave me any detox meds was, it was September 12th. And so my sobriety day is September 13th. 1987 so over 33 years ago over half my life and from that day to this i have not had a drink or a drug or anything that affects me from the neck up you know one day at a time so um so what todd was talking about was then my whole first year of sobriety i was nuts i mean i was coming off of heroin cocaine valium alcohol and a really serious marijuana addiction you know and you know i uh, i granted the 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 weed we had back in the 80s is nothing like what they have now in the weed stores and all of that but it it still it still was enough to give you, cause you some serious withdrawals and some problems but um i uh i had a psychiatrist and a psychologist and they thought i was bipolar and so they had me on lithium and i was having um i was having seizures um i would involuntarily shake i'd just sit in my chair and and my knees, both of my legs would just bounce on the floor. And so they had me on anti-seizure medication. And they gave me sleeping pills during my detox, but they stopped giving me the, the sleeping pills because those were getting me loaded and those would be something I would abuse. And so I got nothing stronger than like melatonin or tryptophan or something like that. And so I, I didn't sleep for almost the, for almost a year. Uh, and my body was just so racked from from having only medicated sleep for the previous pretty much 20 years that it didn't know how to sleep naturally. You know, I had to retrain my body to do that. So I was having these hallucinations. I wasn't sleeping. I was just crawling out of my skin. I was having seizures and um seeing black spots. And, you know, I was just, I was just a wreck. And uh when, when Todd, when Z-Man, you know, entered in, into our rooms and I met him, You know, and he was telling me that he was experiencing some of the same symptoms, you know, coming off the Oxycontins and, you know, a lot of the pills that he was doing. Uh, I shared my experience, you know, about, I think probably Valium might have been the hardest thing to kick because I'd been taking those quite regularly for quite a while. And of course I had the 800 milligram overdose. And so we really bonded on that shared experience of, dude, I did it. And it took me a year before I ever really slept normally or had, couldn't even use the bathroom normally because of, you know, all the all the adverse effects of from the drugs and stuff like that. And um but I did, I got through that and I got better and I, I had a good life. By the time I met Todd I I was fifteen years sober or so. And um and that gave him hope. You know, I told him it does get better and um you know I I'm grateful that I got had the opportunity to share that experience with him and and he's been a great friend of mine ever since he came into these rooms. And he's the one that introduced me to Jacob. And, you know, when Jacob was in treatment down here in San Clemente and, um, he actually suggested I sponsor Jacob, but I was just getting ready to go back on tour. And so I introduced Jacob to his sponsor, a friend of ours, yeah, Johnny. I remember that. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and that was probably the greatest thing that, you know, that, that again was my higher power working in my life. You know, because, you know, Johnny's still working with Jacob and Jacob's doing amazing. And, you know, uh, I have a book study twice a week on Zoom with those guys. And, you know, uh, it works. You know, this thing really does work. There is recovery and especially to see it, you know, in in Bradley's son. It's just so powerful.
2: It really is. You know, I'm always saying that drugs and alcohol are they're a thief. You know, they just they rob they rob people of so much. They, they rob the person that's using of, of their life and their future. And they rob the people around them of their relationships. And, um, it just, as you were telling that story, I was so struck by the thought that if any of those times you had overdosed and died, what, what a loss that would have been. You know, because you've been, you've been so involved in so many different people's careers and music and, and of course, you know, a big part of Todd's life and Jacob's life and, and now our life at the foundation. And, um, it's just all those things that, that you never could have imagined while you were in the midst of using. And I think that that's, that's a really great lesson for all of us to learn because, you know, when you're, when you're in that place and you're using and you're so low, you feel like, you're not really risking anything because your life is shit and it's never going to get better. And, you know, um, but being able to look back and see all the things that you've done that, that wouldn't have happened if we had lost you back then, I think that's really poignant and really a great reminder of how important every single person's life is, you know, because you just don't know. You don't know whose life you're going to impact. And and then, of course, there's, you know, the countless people that, that I don't know whose lives you've impacted through your sobriety and your recovery process.
3: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kelly. Unequivocally, you know, um, yeah, I, I had no idea. I was a, a hope to die junkie, you know, and, you know, I, I pumped gas for a living. I couldn't even make it from check to check. And, you know, I had no girls wanted to have anything to do with me. And, and I didn't, you know, I had a pretty much an isolated existence the last few years of my addiction, you know, because that's just where drugs take you. And um I, I didn't think I had any future. I, I thought I'd be doing everybody a favor to check out. And, and I really wanted to. And, um, you know, um it's it's that's a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And and I'm just so grateful that I, I had a power greater than myself. You know, to intervene, you know, um, I, I, again, you know, it's a sign of the times, you know, we, we didn't have the stuff like fentanyl and all this crap that's out there on the streets today. Uh, I, I'm sure I'd be dead. You know, I was even pre-age, you know, because like I said, I got hepatitis C, but you know, age wasn't even around when I got sober. And so I was very lucky, you know, that I, I quit my needle sharing before, you know, this deadly pandemic of the AIDS virus, you know, started killing everybody.
1: Absolutely. But, um,
3: yeah, it would have been, it would have been a waste. And just like today, you know, and I'm 66 years old. I'm, I'm, my work is not done. Uh, I think there's still a lot for me to do. And, and I'm excited to get up every day and, and to see what, you know, the day is going to hold, you know, who is going to be put into my life, you know, to try to impact. And, and I look for those opportunities. I, that's all I look for these days. It's, it's just a beautiful thing. It's an amazing
1: butterfly effect. You know, just like you said, we're, we're sitting here doing this podcast right now and as I'm, you know, replaying it through my head, the amount of people that just this show has helped, um, you know, if if Ken doesn't kick out and, and he's not there to be such a big part of Todd and Todd's not there to be such a big part of Jake, the Noel Family Foundation never happens. This podcast isn't going on. And so it's just, it's amazing if you think about uh, um, how many people you've affect the branches off of the tree uh, because you are able to to kick out and get things in the right direction
3: yeah jared you know that that's so true and you know we have a one of the speakers i've heard uh he's not around anymore this guy norm Alpe used to talk about seconds and inches you know and um we 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 a lot of us you know die by seconds and inches but a lot of us are saved by seconds and inches you know just seconds you know till somebody came in with Narcan or whatever, or, you know, I mean, I've been brought back from several overdoses and, you know, I've been just so lucky, you know, I was inches and seconds away from death and it just would have been such a tragic thing. And, you know, I mean, so far in my story here, I mean, we're just me just getting sober. I mean, there's just way so much more, you know, that uh, I have to share with you guys about this incredible life I've had over the last 33 years that uh, I've been so blessed to have and to be able to share with other people. And, And hopefully you know impact other lives if nothing else I know it's enriched mine
2: boy that's for sure and so many people so I love the fact that we have this connection that I didn't even know about until recently you were already on the board of the Knoll Family Foundation I already thought you were fabulous and wonderful and loved you when I found out that you had helped put on the benefit concert that was that took place about six months after Brad passed away. Called enough already. It was partnered with um, MAP, Musicians Assistance Program, and put on by Golden Voice, who you were working for at the time in 1966. Tell us how that came about. Yeah, 96. Um, sorry, I said 90s, 66. 96.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, so so I got sober um, September 13th, '87, and uh, I went back to work at the Shell station, Dana Point Shell, and uh, but I got active in recovery and. um my sponsor you know, when you get into recovery and, and if you're working the 12 steps you have a sponsor you know it's a we program you don't do it alone you get somebody else that's been around for a while to help you do this thing and he suggested that if i didn't want to make a be a career petroleum transfer engineer which is what we call our gas pumpers um <laughs> that that i might think about getting uh, an education you know and uh, you know i would never thought about you know, even finishing high school, much less going to college. But, um, you know, I, 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 did anything my sponsor said, you know, um, that was probably the smartest thing I did was just to take someone else's suggestions for once. And so I got a GED and I started going to school and I went to Saddleback College down here for two years. And, uh, I graduated, uh, the valedictorian of my class with a 4.0. I got a, a scholarship. Got a scholarship to Chapman University. Um I entered there as a junior and after two more years I graduated the top of my class, a Bachelor of Science Business Administration, uh again with a 4.0 Valedictorian. And that got me a scholarship into the graduate school, the MBA program at Chapman University. Um and here I'm like 38 years old now. I'm I'm definitely a non-traditional student on a college campus, but Something else I learned in recovery is hey, hey, you got to give it away to keep it. You know, I certainly have to give away my experience, strength and hope, like I'm doing right now, you know, with getting sober, you know, to help other people and, and in order for me to stay sober. But I have to give it away in all areas of my life. So I work, I work for charities like I do on the Noel, Noel family foundation. And there's several others that I, I'm involved with. And I've always been involved, um, in my communities. Be it the academic environment or, you know, my recovery community or even where I live. And so I always had a, um, a position in student government. Um, uh, my senior year of undergraduate, I was a student body president. And, um, and then as a graduate student at Chapman, the last year I was there, I, um, I was the director of entertainment, which is a associated student position where you get a budget and you can put on, um, you know, to put on concerts on campus. And uh, we had had no doubt. I I'd known Gwen and Tony and Tom and Adrian from, you know, because Chapman University is in an Orange and they were a Fullerton kind of Anaheim band. And they were kind of locals back then. And this was before Tragic Kingdom. So, you know, we were getting them to come play on campus and other bands. And um, uh, every school year ended with a big benefit concert. And we would get, you know, local ska and punk bands to come play in our gym you know, for like a, maybe a $10 ticket. And, you know, we'd raise $1,500 for this food bank in the city of Orange called Mary's Kitchen. Well, the last year of college, uh when I was the director of entertainment, I was in charge of, it was called Noise for the Needy. I, I believe they still do it over there at Chapman. And, um uh, you know, because I was in charge, it was going to go big. And because of my recovery and, and being in in 12-step program, I knew other people in the entertainment industry. And one of my good friends was a manager of some bands. And so I got, 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 together with him to see if we could get, you know, some, some bigger name bands to come to our campus and play this benefit, you know, so we could really, you know, really make an impact. And, and he agreed. And, um, we ended up booking, um, Rancid and the Offspring and U.S. Bombs, you know, to play oh in the gymnasium goodness. there. The, the only requisite was, you know, because I had no concert experience. I, I didn't know anything about live entertainment. He, he said I had to work with a Los Angeles promoter in order to get liability insurance and a Ticketmaster contract and all these things. And so he introduced me to the owners of Golden Voice, uh, a Los Angeles concert promoter, um, which was still a very small company back in those days. And they were the number one promoter for Sublime among many other, you know, Southern California bands, but, you know, Paul and Rick looked more sublime shows than anybody else ever did in the country. And um so he introduced me to those guys. I became friends with, you know, Rick Bondi and John and just all the guys in the, the sublime world, as well as the Chili Peppers and James Addiction. And, you know, all these, all these bands from, you know, Orange County area, the offspring and those guys. And we did this show, you know, and um we sold it out in two days and raised thirty thousand dollars for Mary's Kitchen.
2: Wow! And I remember,
3: yeah, it, we turned the gymnasium into a mosh pit, and you know, they had one saying at Golden Voice, like, um, and and um, I don't think Paul would mind me talking about it, but we had an expression that there was never they never had a sold out show. We would always sell more tickets for a GA show. Absolutely. <laughs> We would just keep packing them. And, um, and so, uh, at the end of the night, after this hugely successful event, and we'd had a big check blown up to give Mary, who ran Mary's kitchen, $30,000. And, um, sitting backstage with Paul and Rick, the two owners of Golden Voice at the time, and, uh, this manager and his girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife. And, and we're just sitting up backstage by the, by the dressing rooms, kind of, Rehashing the evening and, and the Dean of students came by and he just said, man, that was amazing. You guys did an incredible job. Nobody got arrested. Nobody went to the hospital and, and you raised a bunch of money. And it was, it was really good for the university. It really kind of, you know, Chapman was still a pretty small school back then and, um, church related too. It's not so much anymore, but, um, you know, he gave us a big thumbs up, shook everybody's hand and he left. And, um, after he left, you know, um, Paul said, yeah, you know, I mean, this was a great event, but, you know, Ken did all the work, you know, and and I organized volunteers to be the stagehands and to do security, and I got the campus security to work for free, and we had some girls and members of the sororities and fraternities work the box office and do the dressing rooms, and so everybody, it was pretty much a volunteer event, so all the money would go to the charity, and um, and I don't think I slept for three days, you know, leading up to the concert, but Sure. You know, um, after Dean Curtis left, you know, Paul said, yeah, this was awesome. Is, you know, have you ever thought about doing this for a living? You know, and I'm getting ready to graduate, you know, business school. And I said, this is the most fun I've had in seven years of college. You know, is that a job offer? And he goes, <laughs> well, do you want a job offer? You know, and I said, you know, like I said, it is the most fun I'd had. He goes, why don't you come work for us for the summer and see what you think? And that was May of 95. And, um, uh, I, I graduated from college. Uh, I have a straight 4.0 through seven years of college. And, um, I went off to, uh, to work at Golden Voice on Sunset Boulevard. And, um, and I've been in the music business for 25 years now. You know, it's, uh, just an incredible opportunity. Um, something that I've always loved live music. I've gone to concerts, you know, since before I ran away from home, I'd love, i have loved live music. And, uh, to be involved with what I think is the best company in the world. They're owned by AEG now, but you know, golden voice, we did all the punk rock shows. We did all the really cool shows, at the whiskey and the the palace and the palladium. And we were doing shows at Santa Monica civic and the Olympic and, you know, Fender's ballroom and just all the, all the awesome shows. And, one of the things, uh areas of my, um, responsibility was the glass house out in Pomona. And, uh, it was a glass house, which was supposed to be the very next concert for sublime after, um, the, the last show that, uh, Bradley did up there in Northern California on May 20, 25th. But, um, you know, uh, I, I just, I found my love in, in rock and roll, you know, um, it, it wasn't money, you know, it was never been about money. I think they started me off at, you know, $300 a week, but, um, you know, it was the best, best thing that could have ever happened to me. And, and I believe, I don't believe there's any accidents. I believe it was meant to happen, you know, that I was meant to get into, into the entertainment field. You know, uh, I ended up being a concert promoter for five years. Um, you know, I helped Gold Boy start the Coachella and Stagecoach festivals and, um, those little shows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, gone on to be humongous things. And, yeah and, um, and yeah, like you said, I, um, you know, uh, we were, we were crushed, you know, when we heard about, heard about Bradley and, you know, not, not because we lost our date at the glass house where they were supposed to play. I, I think I still have one of the flyers, you know, where we were promoting that, which was also our, also that was a rescheduled show because of, you know, because of Bradley's problems. And, um, Right. You know, I did have, I did have one opportunity, uh, with Rick Bondi and, and, um, and John, some of the guys to, to go down to Austin when he was making that, that just that epic record. And I still have my advanced copy of that, uh, the CD, you know, before it came out. And so I, I was already in love with every single song on that record, you know, before mm-hmm. it ever even came out. But, um, you know, it, we were crushed. Uh, Paul went to, uh, his memorial service there in Garden Grove, um, I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to go, but uh when the when it came around to the benefit, um, you know, and and uh, Opie and, you know, Bud and all the guys that'd been by our office, you know, we worked out of a two story house on Sunset Boulevard just west of La Brea, right across from the seventh bale. You know, um you could climb out on the roof and smoke weed and it was just a very, very casual, you know, promoter's office at the time and that's where we did all our punk rock shows of out of back in those days. And, uh, you know, Lou dog would come by and, you know, we just, we just felt part of the family and we certainly were really happy to be involved in that. And Paul kind of let me take point on it to a certain extent. And I, I was always the numbers guy. I mean, I was buying talent and booking bands and shows, but uh, I was the accountant, you know, cause of my business background. And so I was responsible for collecting the money and paying the bills and, you know, getting the donation to map and, you know, I think there was also a, uh, a college fund for Jacob and, yeah. um, you know, and helping, you know, you know, get no doubt. I mean, that it didn't take any convincing at all to get, you know, Gwen and Tony and those guys to come down and play and Pennywise and No Effects and uh, all the guys that came out. It was just, you know, I still have my enough already t-shirt that the Z-Man and, and I didn't even know <laughs> Z-Man. You know, I met Aww. him. I met him then and. Obviously, like everybody else, I'd seen him in all the sublime videos, you know, so I loved him in date rape. It was just great. <laughs> but, um, you know, he designed he did the artwork on that enough already t-shirt and um, and we sold those. And, and the, the proceeds all went to the benefit. And, uh, you know, probably one of the proudest moments of my life, you know, to be able to do something, you know, um, to help, you know, try to support recovery. And, and awareness, you know, maybe more so than anything else, which I think, you know, we're trying to do with this Noel family foundation in Bradley's house. You know, um, Absolutely. I, I remember they came by with the plaques. Um, I've got the plaque with the picture of Bradley with, with Jacob on his back, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, thanking me for my involvement in Golden Voice, you know, and, and making this benefit happen. And, uh, that's, that holds a treasured place in my home, you know, is, it was a beautiful opportunity. What a great experience. Yeah,
2: that's really cool. You know, you take away all the excuses <laughs> between being a runaway and a dropout and then going back to school and, and overdosing and getting clean and all these things. I mean, just all the excuses that anybody could come up with for why they they can't go on or why they can't, you know, have, have a great future. You really take those away because of your, your willingness to just do whatever it takes. And I really admire that. So after, after this, which, okay. So that would have been January, 1996 that, that no, no, 97, January 97. 97 yeah. yeah. That the enough already show took place. And then you started tour managing around 2000. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Um, I was working, um, I, I worked for Golden Voice for three years and, um, I transferred over, got an uh, opportunity. We were doing shows at the Universal Amphitheater at the same time. And so I, I kind of moved over to work with them, um, you know, and, and booked the Universal amphitheater, amphitheater exclusively, uh, and did that for about a year. And then they, they bought out the pretty much the San Diego market, uh, the promoter down there. They took him over. And they built their amphitheater. It was called the Corps amphitheater back then. I think it's called the sleep train now. And so Universal sent me to San Diego to kind of run the San Diego market. And, um, and I wasn't really excited about leaving Los Angeles to go work in San Diego, which is kind of a tertiary market in our industry. But, um, you know, there there was a promise of making me a vice president and being able to come back to Los Angeles and have a a better position. So, you know, I was still, I was still paying my dues. I was only, four years into you know being a promoter. And so I went down there and in 99, um, I had an opportunity um, with about a week's notice to go out on the up and smoke tour, which was uh Snoop, Dre, Eminem, ice cube, orangey exhibit. I saw know, that just, concert. Uh, I did 57 shows of that show, concert. I and was in Dallas. Was, oh, yeah, I was there. You know, we started in San Diego at the Coors amphitheater and we went up to the Honda Center and then we went all over the country. It ended in, in Denver, two nights at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater. But it was the most successful hip hop tour to date at the time. And, um, and what happened was they had a, I went out as the accountant and they had an account and I worked for the promoters. I wasn't employed by, you know, Dre or Snoop or Eminem or anybody, but, um, they had an accountant that had been setting it up and doing all the advance for a few weeks. And he got into some beef with, um, with, uh, Ice Cube's, uh, manager, um, and brother Ron. And, uh, he quit, you know, like a week before the tour was supposed to start. And so one of the owners of the tour, one of the promoters that owned the tour, there were four owners, um, who I knew and was good friends with. Uh, he called me up and asked me if I could just come out and, and get the tour on the road and, you know because he knew my accounting skills were strong and um then they would uh you know they'd find somebody else to fill in you know after i got it going but they just needed somebody to start right away and, and so i agreed to that you know never knowing that he he knew all along once he got me on the road that i'd fall in love with it and never want to go back <laughs> home and you know i mean i went from a you know probably um a thousand dollar a week salary to a 3500 hundred dollar a week salary you know, plus per DM and, you know, staying at the best hotels and traveling on tour buses and, you know, and I, I've always loved hip hop. You know, I was a big fan of Snoop Dre and Eminem and I got to go out and watch that show every night. And, uh, and so I never left. I, I, I was, I had a job down in San Diego. I was, I was booking the Cox Arena at San Diego State University and I'd only been there about two months and. And, uh, the, the guy that got me the, on the, the up and smoke tour, I, uh, he made it, he made it all right with the guys in San Diego state for me to stay out on the tour. And, uh, and they didn't hate me too badly. And so, um, so, and, and the other promise was that if I, uh, I did this tour, he would guarantee me a year's worth of work. So I did that and that lasted almost four months. It went through the whole summer of 2000 and, um, the day after that ended, uh, I had one day off and I started a further festival with, uh, the other ones, the former members of the Grateful Dead and Ziggy Marley. And so I, I went immediately back out on that for about probably 14 weeks. And then I think I had a week off after that and I did a family values tour with Corn and Limp Biscuit. So, um, I probably made, you know, $180,000 that year. Um, but, you know, I had no time to spend it and, and I wasn't even spending my per diem, you know, but the, the money never mattered. It wasn't about the money at all. I just, I, I've always loved live music and to be out there, you know, with musicians and, you know, on the up and smoke tour was when Eminem really came into his own, you know, he was third on the bill, you know, the headliners were Snoop and Dre. They shared a set and then before them was ice cube and then Eminem was, was third on the bill. And his his album took off, you know, shortly after this tour started and the promoters moved him up to direct support and they moved Ice Cube down in the third spot. And Ice Cube just left the tour. He went off to make Friday's movies. And, um, you know, we had to put signs up in front of all the venues because all the shows were sold out. You know, don't come in here if you know, if you came here to see Ice Cube, go to the box office, get your money back. You know, and we didn't. I don't think we had a single refund. You know, no no disrespect to Ice Cube, but everybody was really coming to see Eminem, really, um, and Snoop and Dre for sure. And so, you know, to see you know how he emerged in early in his career, and and i had done you know for Golden Voice, we did the Warped Tour. You know, we promoted that locally in several markets, and you know Eminem was out on the Warped Tour. And Katy Perry was on the Warped Tour. I mean, so many bands got their start on the Warped Tour. Obviously. Sublime were on there several times. You know, um it was it was just an incredible opportunity music-wise, you know, for for me and the work was really easy and I just loved it. And so I I I spent my first year working for promoters, you know, doing accounting. And then I got my got a job on my own in 2001 with the Deftones and um they hired me as an accountant. But probably three months in, their tour manager quit. So they made me the tour manager slash accountant. And I did the whole Deftones White Pony album cycle, which was probably about 15 months. And we went all over the world and we played rock and Rio and South America for a quarter million people. And, um, and I had my foot in the door, you know, as a wow. artist tour manager. And, and, you know, from there I went on, I did three years with Slipknot. I was Smashing Pumpkins tour manager for, uh, summer for three months. I went out with System of a Down. I did the No Doubt Tragic Kingdom tour. I even did some Backstreet Boys, um, Cypress Hill for about five years. I love those guys. Uh, Brian Setzer, the Stray Cats, the Brian Setzer Orchestra. I did Gwen Stefani solo tours. You know, so the last 20 years I've been dedicated working for the artists and, and, you know, touring with the artists and, I'm currently the tour manager for Oreo Speedwagon, although we're not doing any tour dates, but, um, you know, not necessarily classic rock being my thing, but, um, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate that I'm always put into the right circumstances, you know, exactly where I'm supposed to be. I've never taken or turned down a job, you know, uh, based on the money, you know, it's just, it's all something has always felt like it was just the right thing to do. Uh, A good example of that was I'd gotten hired for Cypress Hill for a South American tour and we'd gotten the visas and bought all the plane tickets and everything. And we were leaving in like a week. And this was right after I'd done No Doubt. And we had Katy Perry opening up for us in 2009. And Katy Perry's manager, Steve Jensen, called me up and said, Katy wants you to be her tour manager and offered me a whole lot of money for a tour that ended up going over two years. And I said, wow, you know, that's quite an honor. I'd love to do that. But, you know, I, I don't quit tours. You know, I don't, you know, I've got a responsibility to Cyprus Hill. You know, we've got plane tickets and visas and, you know, they're counting on me and, you know, I, I can't do it. And he, and he was impressed and he said, wow, I hope whoever we hire has the same kind of ethics. And I actually helped him find the guy that took the position. And, um, you, you know, um, like I said, I, I always felt like I was where I was supposed to be. I've worked with no fewer than five bands where um and I don't hire myself out as the sober tour manager. It's nowhere on my resume. I don't have that reputation or anything. But five different bands, bands that are all very well known, um, one or two that I might have mentioned, but several others that I didn't mention where I have been instrumental in the recovery of band members. Um, obviously, in Slipknot, there were several band members in there. You know, and I, I was working with Paul Gray, the bass player who ended up o- overdosing and dying in a hotel room in Des Moines. But, uh, twice I, I was with him through treatment, uh, Cirque Lodge in Utah and Los Sinus in Pasadena and was sponsoring him and taking him to meetings and, and uh, other bands that I'll not, I'll leave nameless. But, um, you know, I just happened to be in the right spot at the right time and and there's people that through no credit to me that are still sober because I was working for them at a time when they hit their bottom and needed to get treatment and um you know that's why I think you know I'm you know my higher power puts me where he needs me to be you know it's just awesome.
2: absolutely that's amazing can can you tell me how challenging it was to stay sober while on all these tours because I know that's a big issue for a lot of people in the music industry, not just getting clean, but staying clean when you're in this party environment. How did you do that?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, that's a good question. And, you know, Jacob asked me about that as well, you know, because, you know, he's been doing quite a bit of touring and, you know, certainly people are smoking weed at his concerts. I mean, people are smoking weed at all concerts. And, you know, from the very first tour, I mean, I was on the Up and Smoke tour. Our tour logo was a big marijuana leaf and you know, part of my responsibility was um Snoop's manager at the time was was his wife. And she would come to me at least every week, if not every two weeks, you know, to get enough money to get him another kilo of weed, you know, to make it through that week. And, um you, you know, but it was like I said, you know, I, I didn't start touring. I, I couldn't have done this job when I, you know, when I was still using. That's for sure. You know, so I had um uh, almost 10 years of sobriety. Um, well, I had 10 years when I started, I had 12 years when I started touring, but I, I had almost, I had, uh, let's see, from 87 to 95. So I had eight years when I started in the music industry. And I, I think that was enough firm foundation in recovery. And, and like I shared earlier in my first year of recovery, I took our 12 steps, the 12 steps of recovery. And by doing that, the obsession was removed. You could have put out, you know, a syringe full of China white heroin or a big pile of cocaine or a bottle of pills or a bag of weed or whatever. And I would no more have had any desire to use that than I would to pick up a gun and stick it in my mouth, you know? Um, so the obsession was removed and, um, you know, it turned out sobriety turned out to be a real asset, you know, because, you know, for instance, Cypress Hill and, and there's still some of my best, best friends, um, be real and send dog. You know, they love to to joke around with me and, you know, but they're really grateful that they got a sober tour manager in there settling up their accounts at the end of the night. And, um Absolutely. you know, we'd have we'd have big buckets of weed on the bus. And I mean, those guys have their own dispensaries and their own strains and delivery services and everything else. And, you know, we would do in stores at at, at dispensaries, at weed stores, and, and we'd walk out of there with grocery bags full of edibles and all kinds of stuff you know, which I could have helped myself to any of it. Um, But, you know, I have no desire, you know, because I know where that leads, you know. So, uh, you know, in our literature, um, recovery literature, basically, uh, the big book is really, uh, which is the big book of the basic texts of Alcoholics Anonymous. They say that you can go anywhere and be in any kind of situation and remain sober if the desire to stay sober is stronger than the desire to drink or use. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I do that, you know, I have a daily reprieve. I still suffer from alcoholism. So I'm more inclined to get in my head and, and feel selfish and self centered, you know, than I am to, you know, smoke a joint or take some pills or whatever. But, um, I do something every single day to, to maintain and to ensure my sobriety. I, I mean, I do probably 20 things every single day you know and um you know that's what we call a program you know if you're not doing you know something over and over again you know like if you're treating your recovery like a a chinese menu you know then you got a random you know and you know random programs don't work you know random programs lead to people relapsing you know so um but i have a program today and you know i can be around you know certainly the, the musicians that I've worked with that were, that ended up getting sober. You know, I was with, you know, lead singers when they were getting kicked on, kicked off of planes because they were too drunk and when they were kicking, getting kicked out of hotels for smoking weed and, and things like that. And, um, you know, and I, I just was be able to be there for them as a sober, responsible person and, you know, clean up the damage as much as best I could. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's never been a temptation. You know, I kind of have this, this armor, armor, uh, armor of recovery around me that protects me and allows me to go into these situations. Uh, I don't do it blindly and I don't do it foolishly. There are situations where as the tour manager, I need to be, you know, but, um, and I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm, it actually strengthens my resolve for recovery because I see what drugs and alcohol do on a daily basis. You know we've we buried two people in just the last week from from drug overdoses down here in Laguna it's oh, wow. uh it's still killing a lot of people, you know it's just so sad,
2: yeah, it really is God, that's heartbreaking you know i I mentioned this earlier before we started recording, I think, but I had reached out to Todd. Uh, letting him know that we were going to be talking and asked if he had any suggestions for questions. And of course, Todd being Todd, he had a bunch. But one of them, the, the, actually the very last one was uh for people who are still struggling with the disease, it, what would you tell them to give them a glimmer of hope? And I feel like you've already done that. Like so much of your story gives hope. Um, hope to, to overcome, you know, horrible circumstances and, and hope to survive in, in an environment that can be, you know, hostile to your recovery. And, um, I just thank you so much for sharing all of that because I do think that you give people hope and, um, and you really have a great way of very matter of factly explaining things. So thank you. Thank you so much for being so, so open and transparent. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Kelly. I, you know, I, um, uh, I've been blessed, you know, no, no question about it. And, um, recovery saved my life. Being in recovery saved my life. You know, I was definitely dying. You know, I still have liver disease. You know, it's in remission, you know, but my liver is not what it was. And, you know, it may shorten my life one day, but it isn't doing that today. But, you know, I, um, to, to, I, you really can't get where I am to where, to where I was. You know, there's just it's just no logical way to get there. But one of the greatest stories I like to share when I when I talk in meetings and and I do that many, many times. And you know, I spoke at our conventions and I get asked to speak, you know, in other cities. And now on Zoom, I spoke in London and Puerto Rico and a few places. But, you know, um, like I said, I left home when I was 15. I had a terrible relationship with my dad and my dad. He's still alive. He's he's 90, 94 years old. He lives in Virginia Beach, and we just have the best relationship now. And he's in good shape. He's doing really well. He's my hero. But, um, you know, um, after after I left Virginia, um, he was still in the Navy, and he ended up getting transferred down to uh, Corpus Christi, and then he ended up retiring back in Virginia. Um, but I, I kind of mended the fence basically just because, well, I was still drinking because I still needed his support. And my dad's done well financially and, you know, I would call him up to help me get out of jail or, you know, write a check for my rent or pay a lawyer or something like that. And, and he would usually do it, you know, he'd send me whatever I needed, you know, but he would always end the phone calls by, you know, can you keep doing what you're doing? You're going to just keep getting what you're getting, you know, and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, send the check. Thanks. Bye. And, um, <laughs> in, in 1994, um, uh, the USA Today, the newspaper, um, every year they pick, um, their all American teams. They got the all American college football team, the all American basketball and baseball teams. Well, they also have the all American academic team where they pick the top 20 students in the United States, you know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, you know, all these Ivy League colleges and stuff. And I was, you know, I was a student body president and 4.0 senior at Chapman University and, um, Chapman asked me if they could nominate me for this All-American academic team. And I go, uh, yeah, go for it, you know? And, and I had to fill out an application and write an essay and talk about some stuff. And, uh, I got picked for the first team, USA All-American academic team in 1994. And, um, um, I was one of the top 20 college students. They, they flew me to Arlington, wow. Virginia. Um, our Arlington, Virginia, which is where USA head today has their headquarters. And I mean, yeah, my story was a lot about, you know, being a non-traditional student in their thirties and going back to college and, um, you know, being in recovery, you know, overcoming the adversity there and also having a 4.0 and a student leader on campus and stuff. But, um, you know, they, uh, they invite your parents. And now uh, I was eight or nine years sober and, um, I, uh, I made the amends, you know, uh, we have a, an eighth and ninth step in recovery where we make direct amends to the people we've harmed when we were drinking and using drugs. And so I've restored the relationship with my family. And, um, I invited my mom and dad to come to this luncheon at USA Today headquarters for the All American team. And, and it was a beautiful weekend. We toured the White House. We met all these senators and, the secretary of education was the MC at the luncheon. And um, each student had their own table with with a bunch of, you know, politicians and stuff like that. And before they would call each student up to get their award, they'd read a bio about him. And they just read this glowing bio about, you know, how great I am. And um, uh, I go up to get the award and it's this big, you know, 12 inch acrylic trophy on a marble stand. And it's just this beautiful thing. I still have it. and I come back, I sit down at the table, and, and my mom and my mom's there. She's crying, and my dad's there, and he says, "Let me see that, you know." And he's looking at him. He's just kind of gloating, and he and he goes to hand it back to me, and he goes, "You know, Ken, you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting." <laughs> and you know, awesome. it had it, it had come full circle. I, I get goosebumps whenever I tell that story. It had really come full circle that you know, I I'm life over death you know that I'm I'm able now to be a contributing member of my family and society, you know, and to my employers and um and show up and add something instead of always taking away and trying to get mine. You know, it, it's just a beautiful thing and I'm, I'm just so fortunate.
1: This is you a are mov- an absolute
2: inspiration.
1: This is a movie-worthy story. <laughs> the amazing things. I mean it 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 truly is and uh yeah. you know, I, I I want to share this because um our producer who is listening on um sent a very nice message and she never joins the show, but she said, this is going to be an amazing episode. He is such a perfect example that it's never too late to chase your dreams, change your life and pursue happiness. And that really, that, that really sticks out in this story. It's uh it's amazing what you've been able to do. And, and this is like, I, I'm just, I'm blown away right now by the things that you've been able to accomplish and, and still be here to tell the story. It's, it's awesome.
3: Uh, thanks so much, Jared. You know, um, and, and I'm not done. You know, I mean, I, uh, I, like I said, I, I, I'm 66. I don't feel 66, you know, and, uh, I'm far from retiring. You know, I, I've got at least another five or 10 years of touring in me. And, you know, as long as someone's willing to pay me to go out on the road to listen to live music, I'm going to keep doing that you know and trying to help other people at the same time you know the one dream i do have is when i do retire and, and you know who knows how long it's going to take for us to get bradley's house open i want to be one of the volunteers working at bradley's house you know and and helping you know people into recovery you know i'm i'm, yeah, I'm giving you you can you that do right
2: whatever now. you want Kat. <laughs> you yeah, just sounds, name sounds it sounds you like that it. you're a perfect fit um uh,
1: i got to i got to put you on the I got to put you on the spot here because being a, a huge music fan and, and listening to all of this, is there a moment that sticks out to you? I mean, all of these amazing tours and great bands, is there one moment that sticks out where you're like, man, this is awesome.
3: Oh God. You know, there, there, there's so many, you know, I, I probably, you know, you know, when you're touring, you know, and you know, I work for artists, um, you know, probably, you know, 20 artists over the last 20, 22 years. Um, You, you not only obviously get to see all their shows and all the bands we support, but you play a lot of festivals. I did, I probably did maybe three or four months with 30 seconds to Mars. And, you know, I'm I'm not a big Jared Leto fan or anything like that. Nothing against them. You know, they're they're actually, they actually rock out pretty hard, but that was really kind of the height of their, their, their popularity. And, we were pretty high up on the bill on a lot of European festivals. And I got to, one of my favorite bands is Rage Against the Machine. And I got to stand on stage when we had him at Coachella and I booked him at the Glass House and I saw him at the Troubadour, you know, so, but, um, they were, they had a reunion tour, you know, I forget how many years ago they were supposed to reunite again last year at Coachella, you know, so hopefully that'll happen next year you know, the, hopefully they'll still come back and do a reunion, but, you know, standing on stage, getting to watch Tom and Zach and, and Brad and the guys, um, you know, uh, I, I just love music, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to where I, I was still alive when Bob Marley was around. And I got to see him live in concert, uh, pre-sobriety, but still very impactful. Probably one of the top 10 live concerts I've ever seen, but, um, you know, uh, one one more little story from my touring days um uh that's most memorable uh i was with a band that i haven't named and i won't um they were headlining a um a concert in mexico city at the uh, the bulls the the, the bullring down there uh where they they have a lot of big metal shows i've done a lot of metal and um and the night before they, they fly in a couple of days before the night before we were supposed to play um, one of the band members, I won't even say what position he plays, um, who had a problem with alcohol, a pretty serious problem. He had gotten really drunk and he calls me from his hotel room about two o'clock in the morning and just says, Hey, you're going to need to find a new person in this position for the show tomorrow because I'm checking out, I'm out of here. And, and, he hung up and I go, Whoa, what's going on? And, um, and I run over to his room, and, and this kind of is what told me it was a cry for help because he left the uh the door open. The little latch was in there, and his door wasn't closed all the way. And I go into his room, and he's passed out in a full bathtub with a slit wrist. And uh, oh my gosh! And obviously it, it was only three minutes ago that he called me, Uh and so you know I grab him, and I you know his head wasn't under water or anything like that, but you know, I, I kind of lift him up and I immediately call the, the front desk and, you know, at this hotel in Mexico, they have a doctor on staff and somebody got there in time. And, um, we were able to get him, you know, in his suite, get him stitched up and bandaged up. And, uh, we actually did the show the next day and we had a private jet waiting as soon as he got off stage. He and I got on this plane and we flew to, a treatment program in Los Angeles where he immediately went into treatment and that guy's found recovery and he doesn't drink anymore and I don't even know if he still has scars from having cut his wrists but uh you know um seconds and inches you know if if he didn't have a sober tour manager somebody to to reach out to you know who who's to say you know who's to say and I've got so many other experiences like that uh, another musician uh, we were in Japan and we'd done a three week tour, and he just crashed and burned at the end of it. And we literally flew home from Japan to his house back in a Midwest state where we stopped just long enough to um, get a change of luggage. And then I flew with him to Laguna Beach and to the treatment program at South Coast Hospital there. And um, he got sober, and he's still sober now, seven years later. You know, so. Uh, I, I think I'm right where I'm supposed to be, you know, and that's for me, that's more important than any other personal pleasure I've gotten from meeting Mick Jagger or, you know, David Bowie was one of my, you know, one of my idols and, you know, getting to hear all the great music. It's just, you know, to to be there, to 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 be the hand of recovery, you know, when so many people have
1: needed it. Wow. Wow. Those are some amazing (laughs) stories. I mean, I'm just, I'm so blown away right now. Um, so a, another thing, a, a takeaway from this, because, you know, we're obviously here to promote the the foundation and, and spread awareness. And your story certainly is is going to do that and inspire a lot. But, Ken, I do have a responsibility to the Sublime fans as well. Um, you had mentioned that tour poster and that Enough Already t-shirt. We're, we're going to need some pictures of that at some point when you come across that stuff. Because I know <laughs> people are going to be asking, why didn't you ask them to, to see the, the poster? and the, the shirt so you know someday you know i'm not i'm not going to rush you now but at some point we're going to need to post those pictures on our on our social media for for our listeners to see. <laughs> unequivocally jared
3: i'm 100 percent all in anything i can do you know um kelly's birthday every year i i jump on the the, the donation to uh to the house and yeah. I, I think that's just such a beautiful thing. we had a really good year this last year didn't we kelly We did. This last year's been
2: amazing. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, anything I can do, Jared. You you know, I'm, I'm on the board. You know, I am all in. So, uh, I I am
1: the wrong guy to say that to, my friend. Um, no. Uh and and I appreciate it but I'm just as I'm listening to it I'm thinking to myself I can already hear the dinging of my inbox when this show drops people going oh I think you can ask to to get a picture or that that poster that he has or that shirt so um yeah you know the fans love to see that kind of stuff so I I just figured that I'd have to get that in right away. Of course happy to do that. You know
2: ironically I have an enough already t-shirt sitting on my dresser right now and I can't remember how it got there. <laughs> Wow. Except that I get like so busy doing things that things kind of pile up, and it's probably been sitting on my dresser for about a year. But that's so funny that you mentioned. Yeah, imagine it. you know,
3: it's a pretty ghetto t-shirt, but I just love it for that. You know, it was. It's awesome. You know, I mean, yeah. it's Z-Man's art. You know, it's just really cool. Yeah.
2: I don't think I ever realized that that was his. I mean, maybe I did back then, twenty-five years ago, or whatever that was. But yeah, that's really cool to know. Yeah, that was great. So, Look- anything I can do to help. You're amazing, Ken. You really are. You're an amazing person with an amazing story. And you're, I'm, I'm really speechless right now after all of that. Thank you so much. I, I feel like Jarrett probably has another question to ask and I've totally monopolized you this entire time, but I just want to say personally, thank you so much for everything that you do, for being a part of the Noel family foundation, for helping so many people that that you really never have to. And, and the fact that you just do this because you want to be of service to other people, it's, it's very humbling to know someone like you. And I'm, I'm really proud to have you on the board. So thank you very much. Well,
3: thank you, Kelly. And, you know, I'm probably a fan first, you know, I, I you know, I, I've got the, the 40 ounces to freedom. um, The big 40, the four o, got it right here in my, on, on my shelf as well. You know, they, they, they had a promotional 40, um, with the sticker on it that says sublime 40 ounces to freedom, you know, so I got some stuff like that, but, you know, to, to be able to, to do something in his, in his legacy with his father, his sister and his son, you know, forget about it. You know, there's nothing more important that I'd rather do. You know, I just love it. I'm, I'm so honored to be a part of this.
2: Thank you. You're going to make me cry. Jared, jump in here quick before I cry. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: I uh I, and again I I feel the same way. Uh I mean, I'm just completely blown away Ken. I I've been doing podcasts for years and have spoke to all sorts of athletes and uh, um this one is I've just taken so much away from it because uh, again just to to see the things that you've been able to do and overcome it's just it's amazing and I know that it's going to be a huge help for our listeners and you've given a lot of good information If we've got a listener right now who's, uh, uh, tuned in and got a little inspiration from your story and they've been thinking about trying to get themselves in the right direction, what's the first step? Just what's the first thing that they can do right now from your experience to, to help get their, uh, to help get into that sober lifestyle?
3: You know, um, I would suggest, you know, a 12 step program. Um, you know, most people, especially with all the, the hard drugs and things we have out today, are going to probably need some kind of a medical detox, you know, to, to actually kick whatever they're going through. But um it's not always necessary. You know, some people call those rehabs and sober living places, you know, $30,000 big books, you know. Um <laughs> I know the thing that keeps me in recovery today is my 12-step meetings, my 12-step program. And, and rarely a day goes by where I'm not in one of those. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to be in one in about 32 minutes, you know, and, um, I was in one at se- seven o'clock this morning. You know, Zoom has really made those a lot more accessible, you know, so, so, and, you know, I, um, when I got sober, um, I, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I, I never thought I was an alcoholic. My problem was a hundred percent drugs, you know, but, um, my my recovery is in mostly in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and it's okay. You know, I'm not saying if you've never drank or you you don't have a a problem with alcohol, you know, uh, to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's twelve step programs for all addictions. You know, but um, I would try to hook up with a a twelve step. You know, whether it's AA or CA or NA, there's heroin anonymous. I spoke at a heroin anonymous meeting in San Clemente a couple of months ago. You know, marijuana anonymous. I mean, there's, there's, that's a great first start. And, and they have a lot of tools to let you, you know, to help diagnose it. You know, there's our 20 questions, you know, answer these questions to see if you may, you know, you may be an addict or you may be an alcoholic. And, um, you know, it, there's no cost for that. You know, the meetings are free. You know, we have no dues or fees, you know, so you can. There's no risk, you know, and they're anonymous. No one's going to know you were there or came or anything like that, you know. So that, uh, you know, I stress as, you know, the main thing that helps me stay clean and sober a day at
1: a time today is is a twelve step program, you know. So reach out to one of those. Awesome, that's that's great advice. Now can I do something with all of our guests and with you sharing your information about being a fan of sublime, you will not be exempt. Um, if you and I just met, we were having a conversation. You were telling me a little bit about your background and you had mentioned sublime. And I said, it's just a band I'm, I'm not familiar with. And you sat down in your computer and I was going to give you an opportunity to play me one song. You were going to pick one sublime song to play me. And you were going to catch me with that song. What song would you play?
3: Oh, God, there's so many. Um, you know, uh, God, I love, um, Little District in the neighborhood. I love, uh, Saw Red. I love, you know, like Bradley's acoustic stuff on the, the deluxe version. Yeah. Um, it was just, but what, you know, honestly, I mean, and, uh, you know, in Date Rape, you know, um, Robin the Hood, all, all those songs, you know, from, from that were, were my introduction to sublime, but, uh, what, the, what, the, what really got me was, uh, what I got, you know, and, um, the acoustic version. Um, uh, I, I love, I think the crowd favorite is, uh, Santeria. Um, there, there's just so many, I, I actually, I can't think of a song that I don't like, but there's no wrong uh, answer. Yeah. Uh, number one, let me see. Uh, I would probably say, um, well, I, I, yeah. Uh I saw red. Great Which song. Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that
1: that's a wonderful song. It's a it's a great it's a great duet. And uh gosh, we would really love to have a conversation with Gwen, only if we knew somebody who could get us in touch with her, Ken.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I got her email address. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now remember just a few minutes ago you were like, Hey man, anything I can ever do. Uh, we we'd, we'd we'd like to chat with her sometime.
2: <laughs> no pressure.
1: Kat. We've no. talked about that. No, we've we talked have, about yeah. that in the meetings.
3: Yeah, I, have, I got yeah. connections. I know people. <laughs> Kendall's right. our I, I, I I've been friends with Gwen, you know, for a long time, long before I became their road manager, and you know, um, and we still keep in touch. You know, so if there's any way I can facilitate that, you know, we've talked about it, and you know, the cool thing was um you know when i was working for brian setzer uh he's managed by surf dog who's also the people that are in charge of the sublime catalog and so i have a really good relationship with with dave and scott down there and you know i've, I've tried to you know help you know with that relationship and obviously my relationship with golden voice i think helped us get into maybe the cali roots
2: and you know and and i'm sure there's going to be other things where we can get into you know And one so. love. I should point out that Ken is the whole reason why we got into the One Love Festival last year, which was oh, that's right. phenomenal. Yeah, it was. I had been trying for months, and and Ken made one phone call, and boom, we had a booth. So
1: <laughs> Ken's <laughs> got the juice. In my neighborhood, in my neighborhood, Ken would they would say Ken's the guy with the thing. Right. That's who's Ken. Ah, don't worry about. It. I'll talk to Ken. He's the guy with the thing, which means he <laughs> yeah. can hear anything at that point. Yeah. So I I, I like that. That's um, Ken. Yeah, this is Make this sure. has been amazing. It's uh, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I guess the only other thing I can ask for you is that you'll come back and chat on chat with us again sometime.
3: Yes, please. I- I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. You guys are going to turn this thing into a, a daily podcast pretty soon. <laughs> you're you're going to get so busy. Don't push I it. Down. got nothing else to do. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, you know, you know, Ken. I, I just, I just got <laughs> us to weekly, so you just, you give me some time, man. I'm, I'm Baby working steps. the best I can.
2: <laughs> Baby steps. Thank you so much, Ken. Again, I, I can't say it enough, but I appreciate everything that you do for the foundation and for my family, and, um, and it's really been wonderful for me to getting to hear all these stories. So, thank you very much for coming on the show. It means a lot.
3: Uh, my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. It, it was an honor and a privilege to, to participate in this. And I, I'm here for you. I'm looking forward to a, a long future with the the Noel Family Foundation and Bradley's house. Makes me happy to hear oh, that. Oh,
1: you'll, yeah. You'll, you'll be back. I, I, I kind of want to book you for the next episode already. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was amazing, Ken. And, uh, and I can't thank you enough for doing this, sir. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Wow, Kelly, uh, when you had initially told me about Ken and wanting to have him on the show, obviously I trusted your judgment, but I am just blown away by that story. This is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite podcast that I've ever been a part
2: of. I, you know, I say that after every episode, but I'm telling you, I could have sat and listened to him tell stories all night and i have known ken for a while and most of that i had no idea about and i already loved him and thought he was awesome and just I uh, it's it's really mind-blowing to me that he's he's been through all of that he's overcome all of that he's helped all those people and he's had so many amazing experiences and he has so many more to go still he's really an amazing person
1: yeah, I'm just, uh I, I'm I'm still kind of blown away. I, I can't wait for the show to drop so I can listen to it again, um, which as you know, I get pretty busy, so I don't always get to go back and listen to our shows, but this one, I will absolutely be tuning in for.
2: Yeah, you and me both. You and me both.
1: Now, Kelly, again, we wouldn't be able to continue to do this and put the show out for free, and obviously the whole point of this is to raise funds to get Bradley's house open, and we Touched on them briefly in the last episode, but... A huge uh, shout out to our friends at Compass Detox. Um, Compass Detox has been a, a great supporter here at Bradley's House. We are going to have their CEO come on and talk to us a little bit about what they do. Um, basically, they're just an industry-leading addiction treatment brand. Um, they have care teams that include doctors, nurses, counselors, techs, um, all sorts of professionals to help people out. Uh, it's person-centered treatment at the core of what they do. Um, um, they realize that no two experiences are the same, and they really help to get your treatment set up specifically for you. Uh, we really thank them for, for sponsoring the show. And how can our listeners, if they're looking to, uh, to make that jump, how can they get in contact with Compass?
2: Well, I will tell you. But first, I would like to say that I love the fact that we have a wonderful quality organization like Compass Detox that we can refer people to, because obviously, we don't have Bradley's House open yet. And there are so many people outside of the music industry that listen to our podcast that that follow the Noel family foundation on social media and and are often looking for help. And so I'm really grateful that we have someone like compass detox to be able to refer people to. They're in South Florida. They do a phenomenal job and you can learn more about them on their website, which is compassdetox.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram as Compass Detox FL for Florida, Compass Detox FL on Facebook and Instagram. And you can also call them at 1-800-26-DETOX, which is 263-3869. And that number 24 seven, they'll connect you with an addiction treatment specialist who can answer any questions or concerns and there's no pressure to commit. So don't feel like you have to be ready to hop on a plane to give them a call. If you just want to know more, if you're looking for some help for yourself or a loved one, please reach out to them. They're a great organization and they're there to help.
1: Absolutely. And we thank them so much uh, for their continued support of the podcast and the foundation. And uh, I look forward to, to having their CEO on and, and having a bit of a chat with them. So, mm-hmm. a huge yeah. thank you to, yeah, huge thank you to Compass Detox guys. And uh, go ahead and give them a, a follow on social media. I know they're always posting uh, helpful things and, and different information. So, like Kelly said, if you yourself or if you just know somebody, uh, if you hear them being spoken about on this podcast, you know that it's a, a company that we can stand behind and and and, uh, and let you guys know that it's somebody that's there to help now on top of compass detox another amazing way to help out the podcast and raise money to get bradley's house built is by visiting the noelfamilyfoundation.org the day given has come and gone it was uh, an amazing success thank you so much to everybody that took place with that uh, yeah. but there's still some of that awesome merch available on the website i know there's not a ton But if you want to get in on some of those specialty pins and bundles, uh, you still have a few of those, right, Kelly?
2: We do. Yeah, but hop on quick because they're selling out. I keep getting notifications from the website every time something sells out. And I got a couple more today. So um, we put a bunch of great stuff on there in honor of the Day of Giving. And there are still a few things left. So go check it out
1: on top of all of the already awesome t-shirts, hoodies, zip-ups, hats, stickers, posters, there's a, a ton of great ways that you guys can get included. Now, I know what you're thinking, "Hey, I want to help out, but um, you know, I just don't have it in the budget right now or I've already bought all the merch and I don't need any more." Uh, you can help us out by sharing the show, sharing the page, you guys can donate a dollar or two. You can do it through Cash App, which is Money Sign Noel Family. Um, and you have a Venmo set up now, right, Kelly?
2: We do. We're super high tech. We're hip. We're with it. We have a Venmo now, and I'm super stoked for that.
1: And the Venmo address is the Noel, Noel Foundation. Noel family. Noah Foundation. Okay. Yes. All right. So, perfect. We've got that all sorted out. And, uh, guys, like I said, every dollar does help. Um, so, now, we typically like to end the show with one of the amazing tracks off of the compilation album, The House That Bradley Built. You've heard a bunch of great tracks on here. Guys, you could get that at Law dash records.com and uh, pick that up uh, but we're going to do something a little special I'm calling a bit of an audible for today's final song because mm-hmm. today is the birthday of our beautiful producer and my BFF and life partner Anna and for today I did a little sidetrack. I reached out to Brandon Hardesty of the band Bumping Uglies and he said hey man go ahead and use a song if you want to now an amazing song that he wrote for his beautiful wife Sophia Yin and the Yang you guys I'm dedicating this to you and a happy birthday this is Bumpin' Uglies with the song Yin and Yang now guys thank you so much for hanging out with us we had a wonderful show remember to check us out every Wednesday morning we're available everywhere podcasts can be found guys you don't necessarily have to go home but it's time to leave Bradley's house
0: Never running, girl, I got everything you want, you got everything I need, find that happiness somewhere in between, cause I like the drumstick, you like the thigh, and I like you it when it's sunny, you like cloudy skies, I like to see you smile, you like my big blue eyes, I like your honesty, you like my little white lies, you're the, into my yang, it's in my yang, I in my tank, satisfy my hunger pain, it's my yang, into my yang, new state every night I like the circus well you like the mystery i like the facts you like the digital i like the wax porn i trying to make is like magnets in a stack oh you can't fight nature opposites attract you're the inside my into my yang to when my tank satisfy my hunger plan into my yang into my yeah yeah